Hi, my name is Viraj Mane, and I beat the often path by developing a whole new class of therapeutics that can help and protect immunodeficient patients all around the world. Viraj Mane is the co-founder and chief scientific officer at Lactiga, an award-winning venture-backed biotherapeutics company treating and preventing infections using an unusual but genius method human milk. No, seriously. That's right, Lactiga uses human breast milk to battle even the world's most dangerous pathogens. It turns out some people would benefit tremendously from what's found in the breast milk of other humans. And if done right, the power of this novel approach is astounding. Viraj has a PhD in human genetics from Baylor College of Medicine, and he's completed two postdoc fellowships, including one for the United States FDA, or Food and Drug Administration. After he became a father, he had a strange but brilliant idea when he saw the excess breast milk stored in his freezer. I know you'll love this episode from a very smart person because this is a truly wild solution. So here's Viraj Mane, I'm Ross Palmer, and this is Beat the Often Path. Welcome to the show, Viraj. It's a, such a pleasure to have you here. Yours is a, one of those ideas that is just wild and I think beyond comprehension when we're searching for people who are making meaningful choices in this world of ours. So what is this great insight that you've had and how the heck did you end up in this path? A wonderful question. The origin story of all of the company I'm going to tell you about today is becoming a dad. And okay. uh, for many new parents, uh, you know, especially first-time mom, she's pumping late at night or maybe pumping at work, and you don't use it at the moment, but you keep it. You know how precious, precious yes, it is. Yes, very precious. Indeed. And so I came to fatherhood as a new dad, but also a science nerd. I'm like a nerd since early childhood. And so I would look at these pouches that were starting to be accumulated in the freezer and say, you know, everyone knows this is full of nutritious and immune benefits. But more specifically and scientifically, milk is full of antibodies. And those are the molecules we're supposed to produce, if we're healthy, to fight off all the germs around us. These are viral, bacterial, fungal, parasitic, etc. We have to fight all of that or we don't make it. And so the antibodies in milk are the critical layer that provides that protection to uh, breastfeeding infants. Uh, but because we had so much extra in our house and some of my friends, including my co-founder, Rickon, we became dads around the same time. We all had the same story like, oh, the freezer is filling up with milk. There's less room for food and other stuff. And we had a laugh about it. But that actually sparked this random idea in my head. It's like that movie Inception. The idea is in there. You can't mm. get it out. Mm. And the idea was, if this is in fact a resource that's not just like a couple households, but this is probably happening all around the country, maybe all around the world. Could that be an antibody-rich resource if there's extra uh, that could be repurposed in a way to create antibody therapeutics for patients that don't make them? And who are the patients that don't make them? Well, they have immunodeficiencies. And those can be driven by a variety of genetic factors or even non-genetic factors. But the upshot is if you have that condition, you're sick way more often than healthy people. And that's why I felt that I could really commit time to this. If there's a way to take this resource that the pharmaceutical world doesn't really think about, and convert it to a pharmaceutical product for a patient population that has a tiny list of stuff that you know barely works. I mean, that's something you can build a company on. That's something you can build a legacy on. Wow, what an interesting story. So before we jump into the specifics on that, uh, my mom didn't breastfeed me as a baby. Is that why I turned out so weird? <laughs> people always say something's gotta be wrong with this guy. Do you think yeah. that's it? Well, I've seen your background, and I mean, something's clearly wrong. Right? Yeah, something is clearly not functioning as normal. Uh, 
Okay, we'll, we'll put a pin in that. We'll put a pin on that. This is actually a psychotherapy session. That's the thing. I hook you with the promise of promoting your company, but then I really just unload my own personal feelings on you. Um, okay, so you became a new dad. What year was it that you actually became a father? That was 2012. And okay. the idea, so the idea was planted back then, but I did nothing with it. I mean, mm. for many entrepreneurs, and you've spoken to so many, the idea gets in there, but maybe you have a family, or you have a regular job. And you're like, well, I'm not going to jeopardize this good job. So let's just let that idea live in my brain and maybe nothing's ever going to happen. And it kind of just kicked around on my brain for honestly about five years, wow. but I could never get rid of it. I had just been doing my own research in the background and I had had some issued patents in my past, like unrelated to the company Lactiga. So I knew enough about how to explore a topic in enough detail that you can sort of satisfy yourself scientifically. Oh, this this would be novel. I don't know if there's a business case, but it could be novel from a patent perspective. So I was able to rely on that lens. I said, oh, last, last couple of years, had a baby, thought about milk. No one's doing this thing that I that is stuck in my brain. But why is that? I mean, like if, I, if you asked a physician, would they tell you, oh, what a dumb idea. Like this is the reason we no one ever does this. Right. So I said, well, who could I ask? And if they tell me it's a dumb idea, then I'm done. I'll, I'll drop this. But I, you know, I'm, I'm a nerd, so I have a lot of scientists and physician friends. So I would just ask them casually, you know, we're hanging out. And for the most part, they were like, no, no, that actually would make sense. I mean, I don't know how you do it and it's never been done, but if someone did it, that could be really interesting. And so there's this slow process of satisfying myself that maybe I'm onto something, but I don't really know enough to say like, yes, do this or no, stop wasting your time. But you start collecting enough evidence and then you can at least start making one decision or the other, right? So just like an evidence generating or evidence collection process for about five years. And then closer to 2017, I called my uh, my friend Rick and we've been friends for years. We've been roommates and drinking buddies in Washington, D.C., you know, made a lot of trouble together. But he was also an FDA expert. And knowing that, I said, well, this is a guy, number one, I can trust him. And number two, if this thing has legs he could be the kind of person that can maybe help me make that decision. So I was looked through my emails a while ago, be like, when did I first call him about this? This, you know, it feels like ancient history. And it was January, 2017. So I still remember calling him up. I said, this probably sounds so crazy, but just tell me your thoughts. Maybe I'm barking up the wrong tree. About 45 minutes later, we kind of made a phone handshake deal. Like, look, this is worth both of our efforts. Just nights, weekends, we're raising kids. We have jobs. We have our spouses like, let's just spend a little bit of time. And if it's a hard no, like whoever gets the hard no, just tell the other person so we can stop wasting our time. Mm. I was kind of the handshake deal. I was in Toronto. He was in New Jersey. So I was like, I'm not even going to see you in person for how knows long, but let's just think it through. And like, if you think I'm onto something and you're the guy to help me build it, let's just go in equal. And, and that's true. That is how we've structured it. Equal. That's the beginning. What an awesome story. So what kind of job were you in previously? And had you been entrepreneurial before that? Or you said you had a couple patents. That's right. So I took some early stabs at entrepreneurship, like when I had sort of traditional academic jobs. So I did a PhD, okay. then I did a postdoc fellowship, then I did another postdoctoral fellowship. And if you couldn't tell by now, like I just assumed I'd be like this very nerdy lab rat kind of figure. That, <laughs> that appealed to me, right? The, the process of discovery and academic collegiality and publishing very interesting, um, you know, scientific innovations. All of that appealed to me. Um, but I had the uh, fortunate opportunity to exit the the traditional academia and and try to apply those same skill sets to more like venture development, partnership development, where you could think about problems 
at a high lens, like, oh, well, what stakeholders could make this crazy innovation happen? And that's a very different mindset than I'm at a bench, I need to execute this study in like an hour because after lunch I have to do a different experiment. You know, you have to be granular, you have to be focused on experiments. That, that all makes sense. But it also means that you don't necessarily have the this frame of mind to think in a different way, like, well, how do giant organizations tackle, tackle a problem? How would they create coalitions? Versus you doing work at the bench, that's very like, you know, ground up. And then there's more of a, a top-down philosophy. And I said, mm. that's interesting. What if I could explore that? What if I could have roles that let me do that? And I did have some options to come away from the bench and explore that. So that was very fortunate. So, I mean, like you, I've sort of taken this totally non-linear path through life. But now if you fast forward to today, the skill sets I picked up along the way are exactly what I needed to be here. So, you know, life kind of throws you a bone sometimes. That's crazy. I mean, what a cool and fascinating story that you were able to make that leap. So what was the evidence after five years that finally propelled you to to go in? I mean, beyond the handshake phone call. Yes. So I'm going to tell you some very awkward early founder stories Mm -hmm. um, because I think you'll get a laugh out of them. But, But to your question, like, well, how do you get enough evidence? I mean, there isn't. There's not like, okay, I've achieved a specific threshold. Like, Here's a guaranteed (laughs) career for you. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. No one can tell you that. But um, and I speak to people younger than me who literally grew up with Google as a default product that didn't exist when I was early in, in you know, my scientific career. So I tell people like the, there's so much more information than you could probably ever digest, even if you want to explore this niche topic. So start there. It's not going to cost you a penny. So a couple of years of basically doing that. Um, Google patents, Google Scholar, just general searching. There's also this great real world example that told me, okay, forget all the online searching. This actually means I'm really onto something. The first time I felt that way, I was still in Toronto. I was at an evening reception, like a biotech founders event at a Johnson Johnson facility called J-Labs. They'd host mixers, you know, maybe some beer and wine type of thing. It was in Toronto, but just down the street at a, uh, maybe a nursing college or a women's college happened to be a annual delegation of the American Academy of uh, Midwives, something like that, doulas and midwives. These are the women that support, um, you know, mothers before and during their birth. So a bunch of these attendees from that midwife or midwifery conference happened to be at the same reception I was at because they were given an invitation. So I just sort of overheard people saying like, oh, 30% of the people here are from this, uh, you know, nursing and uh, midwifing conference. I said, oh, cool. Maybe I should just ask them because they interact with new moms and breastfeeding literally all day. That's their job. So I talked to them about this vision that I'm going to tell you about, which is milk is full of antibodies, but there's these immunodeficient patients. Like what if there was a way to transfer the benefits to them because many moms produce extra? Again, that's one of the things I had learned with my own research. But now I'm talking to people who are in the industry. So I'm trying to be very careful and respectful. Like they're the experts, not me. Um, that's been my philosophy for a lot of these discussions. Like I can probably learn something from you, but I'd also like to tell you what I'm thinking of and you can tell me what you think. So every midwife I spoke to that night within the first two minutes of just kind of pitching this vision that was in my brain, no studies, no nothing. They were like, yes, that makes perfect sense. Like that, that would help people. And if that was a thing, I would tell my mom clients, if you have extra, put it for this reason. I mean, all of them said a version of that. So I said, I I think I'm actually onto something. Um, and it just illustrates the difference of, you know, you can read how to ride a bike or you could get on a bike and try it, right? I had read patents for years and I had tried to inform myself, but I talked to people who live that world. And then that, you know, 
45 minutes of networking feedback that night was in a way probably more valuable than the reading and validation I had been trying to do on my own for a couple of years. Amazing. So first of all, I think um, one of the chief takeaways I'm going to take from this entire interview is the word midwifery. I'm going to start <laughs> peppering that into my language from now on. I hadn't heard that before. I believe, uh, yes, I need to just start using that. Um, okay, so then that's a major plus for the concept of networking in general, because I think a lot of people, especially people who have ideas or they're on the fence or they have a job and they're like you pre-transition to this new phase, I think a lot of people question the value of networking events, especially networking events that cost money. Because they think, oh, I'm, I'm, you know, I need to save all the money I can. Is it really worth it to go to mixers like that? But it seems to me like you might say, yes, that's very much worth it. Well, I mean, it depends on the price point. If, if you're a student, I mean, you can't afford these thousand dollar conferences. But I will mm -hmm. say, um, if you've gone through grad school, I guess most undergrad students, but grad school in particular, you develop like this nose for like free opportunities where there's going to be free booze and free cheese plates. <laughs> and so in this event I was talking about, I pretty sure I didn't pay or maybe I paid a very small fee and that's golden you know for 20 bucks if you can get a ticket and then there's going to be like cheese plates there um <laughs> that that you take you get right? a meal out of it no matter what <laughs> yeah that's right yeah you have a belly so full you of cheese the you network or a not. belly full of cheese and some booze on the side and then you're good that's to true. go yes all right so that's a very valuable tip for the wannabe entrepreneurs out there um so I was recently at a farm. I was uh, filming a, com a commercial, actually, for this far local farm in my area, Southern California, and they were they had birthed a cow calf that morning. And of course, like humans, cows they the first batch of milk is the colostrum, right? That first most important thing. And the woman who runs that farm, she was telling me that that colostrum is essential to the health of the cow, and so much so that if they don't get it right away at birth or within some hours. It's going to cause them significant problems for the rest of their life. So is this something that has to be started at the very, very start of a human's life for it to be effective? Is it related to, because like I said, humans have colostrum as well, or is it something that you just have to get as soon as possible? Wow, great question. So the short answer is human milk provides critical immune and nutritional protection to the breastfeeding infant as long as that breastfeeding takes place. Um, in fact, once you stop breastfeeding, so they're weaned off of breast milk, the protection still lasts for some amount of time after that, because whatever was their last feed, I mean, they've consumed a bunch of antibodies from that feeding. And those antibodies are actually quite long lived. So they will remain in circulation for some time. Um, so it's not like, oh, late milk is non-valuable. You know, there's, there's never not going to be value. It's, it's again, it's critical nature's first superfood, really. Right. But you're also right that the very earliest colostrum, um, is just so much more enriched for certain nutrients and antibodies compared to later milk. And evolutionarily, that makes sense. I mean, they're literally just born. They've been exposed to all the germs in their outside environment, outside the placenta for the first time ever. So the most time of need would be that period. And that's why colostrum, like you have the spike of nutrients and antibodies at that early session. To your point, like from a sourcing perspective, we don't have the luxury of saying like, oh, no, we just want these early colostrum samples because they're so jam-packed and we don't want anything else that that isn't that wouldn't be realistic it's not practical from, right yeah not, yeah it wouldn't be feasible from a supply perspective luckily for us there is a pooling strategy and this starts getting into like the nerdy immunology of this all which is that if we're healthy we're generating antibodies against all the germs in our environment um you're experiencing very different germs on the west coast than i am on the east coast but you know we're in the same country we're experiencing smog germs yeah 
Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and we're facing floods in the New York subway. So trust me, <laughs> we're facing flood germs. Yeah, flood <laughs> and maybe bed bugs. That's right. <laughs> right. Um, but you know, we're all fighting multitudes of germs at any given time. Um, and so that also means that milk recreates that protection. If this mom has experienced, you know, 30 germs in the past couple of months, her antibodies likely reflect that. Another mom, a hundred miles away, is still facing germs, but they're not identical. So the way we can maximize that and leverage the fact that, oh, they are actually different. In the pharma world, you typically want a drug product to be very clean and very pure. Every pill is the exact same. That's a you know chemical product strategy. This strategy, what we're talking about, is almost the opposite. Let's go for breadth of coverage. Let's go for difference in antibody repertoires. And so the way you achieve that is simply by pooling samples from different people onto like a master batch. So now the antibodies are from all these different moms that have faced different germs. Um, you know, they have different backgrounds. And so they're pooled and then we can run antibody extraction procedures, which you've already developed and which we have several patents on so that the end product is this massive conglomeration of antibodies from in the future it could be thousands of donors per batch right now we're up to we've done like we've done in the tens we've done in the hundreds so you have to work your way up at the early proof of concept you're not going to have thousands of samples ready obviously so do these kids end up growing up with superpowers of some kind like they can scale a building with their bare hands i mean do they have some sort of advantage from having much more input than normal people so uh, breastfed infants compared to formula-fed infants do have improved um, histories of, of fewer infections. And, you know, it, it would make sense that the literature supports and suggests that the antibodies in breast milk and the other immune factors provide a protective layer that formula cannot. And so infant formula, you know, you can replicate things like sugars and fat contents. Like there's no shortage of those in the American diet, right? They're easy to synthesize and, and put into foods. So formula manufacturers are certainly able to recapitulate those elements of natural breast milk. They cannot recapitulate antibodies because they have to be naturally produced against all the different germs in the environment. There's no synthetic way to say this antibody fights flu and that antibody fights COVID. Um, you can do those individually. The pharmaceutical world has created antibody products in that way, but that's one at a time. There's tens of thousands of different germs that infect just our respiratory tract and then a different 10,000 set of germs in your gastrointestinal tract, and then other ones that want to infect your eyes or other ones that try to infect your blood. So we're talking about literally tens, probably hundreds of thousands of different viral, bacterial, fungal, and parasitic species. There's no company that can be like, all right, well, we're starting here. We just need to get to 100,000 of these, right? Mm -hmm. that, that's not a, a viable replacement for, for what we're trying to do. But if the kid has 10,000 donors, they're gonna be able to go to New Jersey, no problem, even <laughs> if they're born on the West Coast. <laughs> Whereas my kid <laughs> would struggle. I mean, is there, do they have a leg up or is it really just catching up to even? Well, if you're talking about the patients we want to treat someday with this product, yeah. Um, yeah. and I should make a, a critical distinction, this is not limited to children. Right. The immunodeficient patients we're talking about, they, they are, you know, they're around the world um, and they're of all ages. In many cases, they're not even diagnosed that early because many of the conditions right. we care about are rare diseases, which means the right. diagnostic tests to even verify that they have a disease are not you know, super robust. And you would need a specialist physician to even think about ordering the test or interpreting the test. So if you're taking your child to a typical general pediatrician, their mind isn't thinking about rare diseases as often because they're rare. They don't come up that often. They're focused on the germs that every kid on the playground is sharing among each so other. Like one in 50,000, right? For some of the immunodeficiencies you're talking about? 
Yeah, you've done your math. Yeah, um, you've done your homework. So the prevalence or the incidence rates vary a lot. You know, some of them it's one in a thousand or one in 20,000, one in 30,000. And those are pretty rough estimates, by the way. Like those aren't hard, hard figures. The whole point is diagnosis is difficult. So we don't know how many patients have never been diagnosed but have lived their whole lives with it. Um, and, you know, and you see these testimonials. This is an interesting bridge between like the clinical reporting of a disease state versus the lived experience or the subjective sure. experience. So the clinical reporting is the, the incidence rates, kind of the ones you just said, what's around one in 50,000. Subjectively and experientially, what it means is that a lot of people who maybe have less access to medical knowledge or even just less access to healthcare uh, systems because maybe they're in a remote region, they're less likely to even think about seeking a specialist. They might just say, you know, ever since I was a kid, I got sick more often than my classmates, but it's preschool, everyone gets sick. So no yeah. physician ever flagged this to, uh, to attract a special attention or extra attention. Mm. And so mm. they basically live their life just feeling sick most of the time. Mm. And, you know, unfortunately you have some physician patient relationships where the patient is told like, I, some of this is probably in your head. You should try to live your life. And, you know, like simple over the counter, just take cough syrup. If you're going right, out just and, take more pills, more medicine. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, then the, the incentives are not always aligned for the patient's specific experience. And, you know, maybe that's a larger question about how our healthcare structures are built. Um, but it does mean that there's these shortcomings in the patient experience for this multitude of reasons. So then what percentage of, of mothers who have kids who have this would even be aware of the fact that they wouldn't be giving their child the necessary antibodies? Is that something you think most of them would have figured out by the time they reached adulthood or many just simply wouldn't know? Oh, good question. Do you mean like, why would they choose to not breastfeed or why would they not be able to? And well, right. Is, is it simply that they're not able to or that they choose not to or that the quality of their milk is fundamentally different? Oh, okay. Well, in terms of the quality of milk, you know, the guidances from the milk bank community who we've taken, um, you know, taken a lot of efforts to actually engage them and get to know them and earn their trust. You know, and then the pediatric guidance, the immunology guidance is all pretty consistent that your milk is best for your baby, right? If the alternative was not milk, meaning formula or maybe some other food products right. that can't provide these immune benefits that your milk does. So your milk is the best option for your child, bar none. There's nothing else, that, you know, everything else is in second or third place. Um, so, you know, that's a pretty consistent guidance. Um, but, you know, maybe where you're also getting at is like, what are the factors that encourage mothers to forego breastfeeding or, or you know, that, that prohibit them from doing it, even if they did want to? And then, you know, these are factors that are more cultural. They're not related to our company, but because we've thought about this a lot, I can try to share some insights. So sometimes it's, there's mothers that produce very little, you know, that's just a biological reality. That's not something they can control. Right. On the flip side, some mothers produce like freezers full. That is so much more that they're ever going to use. So they donate right. to milk banks. So you, right. you, you have production on, on a spectrum, like producing way too much, producing way too little. That happens naturally. But then there's other structures like um, your employer may not have very permissive or supportive policies for you to take breaks and have a dedicated room that you could pump. So you could pump it in these little containers and put them in your cooler bag, take it home at the end of the day, and then park it in your freezer until you need it, right? If you have access, you'll keep producing. Um, and then of course there's mothers that just don't want to or, or, or don't want to after a certain amount of time, right? I mean, there's a, there's a lot of 
factors. True. Some are choices. Some are that you know conditions imposed on these mothers, unfortunately, even if they may have wanted to. So there's a lot of reasons. And then, of course, the formula industry has its own advertising arm, so it can sell to these mothers and and convince them that look, you don't have to breastfeed. If you can, great. And if you don't want to, that's why we develop these products. It's to support you and your baby. And they have very feel-good marketing around that. I mean, right. that's a very mature industry. They've had many, many decades to build up the marketing strategy to convince mothers that this is a useful product. It will provide certain layers of protection. And, and that's kind of like when I think of the 50s, this sort of better living through chemistry time where like chemists have figured out a way that you don't even need breast milk. Here's the formula, right? And all these powders and chemical compounds and all that was the miracle of that time. And it almost seems like now we're coming back to this age where we realize, okay, we got to dial that back, you know, plastics. Oh, there's a bunch of things that are resultant from that, that we don't, that maybe are harmful to us or that we didn't fully know the consequences of in that time. And now it seems like we're looking at more, foundational natural things across the board so it makes sense to me that you your your choice and, and, and i think it speaks volumes that something so natural and obvious i mean to you of course had not been considered by anybody else <laughs> because nobody was looking in that way everybody's trying to synthesize something and you said hey but this is this is a natural thing do you think that's, that's part of a broader shift yeah this, this is a great point and, and you know as with any founder if you maybe are onto something and you share it with the right people and if it's a good idea, which I think ours is, people will start asking like this. They'll say to us after a pitch or after a meeting, like this makes perfect sense. Like, are you telling me no one ever tried this right. um, or maybe they tried it and it didn't work? And are you just not realizing that this is the reasons it can't work? So that was part of the education process. You have to satisfy yourself that if someone took early attempts, but it never went anywhere, why is that? Like, are we just going to face the same hurdles that someone solved, you know, someone got stuck with 20 years ago, which yep. means we've wasted our time? Or is it in fact this opportunity that hasn't been sought after? And as far as we know, and, you know, we've both scoured the literature on like FDA approved products and it's never been done. It's not out there. So the biggest companies that have all the money they could have thrown at this have not chosen to engage the, the breast milk community or the milk bank community in this way. So. That's something I take a lot of pride in because that's not about the technical elements of a biotech company. That's about relationship building. And then it comes back to the networking point you were making before. We had to start this with literally cold calls to milk bank executive directors because their phone numbers are publicly listed, fortunately for me. And I said, I'm calling because I have this crazy idea. It's in my brain. I can't get it out. I just want to get a couple of thoughts from you. And you know, if you could provide some input, maybe I can do some self-funded studies to um, capture some of these early hypotheses and capture some data sets that would further validate this. And that's exactly how that process went, by the way. This podcast is brought to you by my agency, Aloha. That's A-L-O-A, a digital marketing agency that helps brands and nonprofits on a mission tell their story. We do website prototyping, design, UI, UX, SEO, CRO, 3D design, video editing, commercial creation, 2D animation, industrial design, content management, learning management systems, and our roots are in e-commerce managing and building extensive catalogs with hundreds or even thousands of products. In short, we do everything brands need to grow their digital presence with simple, transparent, monthly a la carte pricing so you can just build exactly the modules that you need for your company or nonprofit. Learn more at aloa.agency. That's A-L-O-A dot agency. And now back to the show. So when did you realize that you had a patentable concept in all of this? And what, broadly speaking, in terms that I can't completely rip off, although I'll try later and sell it to foreign governments. Um, 
What? How does the patent work? <laughs> what? What is the tech that you came up with then? I think you sort um, of hinted yeah, at it earlier a little bit. Yeah, it's a big question. So, I mean, like getting an approved patent goes through in the U.S. It's the the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, and you know they have a lot of similarities with other patent offices in other jurisdictions. There's always nuances country to country, but in general, you're looking for some layer of novelty that satisfies the patent reviewer. Now, the, a big part of their job is to scour the what they call the prior art, which means anything out there in the public domain that would be searchable and knowable by people who are interested in the same space. So if you're going to propose something, you have to proactively say we're aware of these other types of citations and these other types of studies. And what we are presenting is different and novel and you know, differentiated and not obvious based on all these uh, forms of prior art. And that's a significant uh, hurdle to overcome, but overcoming that is how you get from a filed patent to a granted patent. Uh, we've done it three times for Lactica so far, meaning three granted patents. We have several more pending, which just means we're still going through the process of like it's filed, but we're looking, waiting for feedback and we would have to respond to the feedback. And if we're successful, those will convert into granted patents. It's a very lengthy process. Um, there's a lot of strategy in it. Like you could take the, the scientist first lens, which was, which I did in my earliest patents early in my life. And those led to granted patents. So it's nice to show them on my resume, but I had really not done any of the homework of venture creation or like, who could I sell this to or how much would it cost? And that's okay. And that's an early part of the, the discovery period or the self-education process. So, you know, I encourage all the young nerds out there. I mean, if you, it doesn't have to be a patent, but it could be a white paper or something like that, or just something proprietary. And that way you've created what's called intellectual property. So that doesn't have to be a granted patent that's recognized by the patent office, but it could be something so proprietary. It runs on your laptop and like you're not sharing it out. So it does this very specific thing and no one else could replicate it or no one else could easily replicate it. If you can do anything along that spectrum, you've created intellectual property. And that's a cool feeling, but converting that into like yeah. something monetizable or the foundations of a business, well, that's very different. You better have really done your your homework on business fundamentals. And that's, as you know, that's a totally different type of research than anything scientific and creating a technology in a laboratory. And in your case, it was essentially synthesizing thousands of different uh, donors and pulling the antibodies from that in a form that you could administer to somebody new, right? That's right. And so our company is in the preclinical stage. So we haven't tested yeah. this in patients yet, but sure. any company like ours has to start with preclinical studies yeah. such that you can start uh, framing out a proposed clinical trial framework. You seek approvals from the FDA. If you get that approval, then you can start testing the people. So, so that inflection point that you just touched on, for us, that should be next year. That should be 2024, okay. where we're taking wow. these extracted products for the first time, giving it to patients with obviously very careful monitoring for safety. I mean, safety and tolerability is the only and critical endpoint of the first in human clinical trials. So for you asking, like, did you give enough? Is it working? It's really about like, is it tolerable and safe at the doses you've given? And you cannot move anything forward until you've addressed those um, safety parameters. So this is a very exciting time. I mean, six years on, but this is probably still, I mean, you're in the heart of it. And obviously I've seen, uh, you know, from Crunchbase and what limited information there is, like you've raised some funding for this and some, you know, fairly serious funding. Um, would you say that most of your day-to-day -day now is is in seeking more funding or is it just in getting these approvals that you need? What is the biggest hurdle or what's the work right now for you mainly? 
Uh, it's a great question. You actually hit both of them on the head. So yes, we're spending way more time fundraising than we wish we could because that's just how the process goes. Sure. But in parallel, we're absolutely focused on some of the regulatory actions that we are actually want to submit to the FDA quite soon. Um, you know, those these two have to go hand in hand. Um, it's, it's kind of important for entrepreneurs to realize that you'll basically always be in fundraising mode, but the outside world will still expect you to push forward the research, in our case, push forward the regulatory documents that establish your proposal to the FDA so that they can take their time to review the proposal so that they can re return their feedback to the company so the company can then execute on the required next steps. I mean, all this has to happen in parallel. Um, I'm not the CEO, I'm the chief scientist. So sure. in addition to everything I just said, I'm also trying to continue working with our scientists all around North America to make sure that the data sets that justify everything we've just been talking about actually come out as data sets that we can use and synthesize and put into reports, a publication we just put out uh, quite recently. So these, these things all have to happen in parallel. Like you might wish that, let me just do the science this month and then I'll focus on fundraising next month. Never works that way. Mm. Everyone expects your input all at the same time. Right. How many people are you managing? How many people are part of the company now? We're very small and lean. So I have my co-founder, Rickin, so we're the two co-founders. We have a project manager named Shruti. So there's really just the three of us as the core team. We're all in Central Jersey. So we do meet on site together in our office yeah. space about once or twice a week. The rest of our time, I'm just, just me sitting at my laptop in my apartment here and getting yeah. the work done. And then we have collaborators literally around the US and Canada, um, even a collaborator we want to keep working with out in the UK. Um, yeah, we've got partners that support us from, you know, essentially all remote locations, but, but it's worked for us, right? We've been able to keep our core team extremely lean, which means you're keeping the overhead down. I don't have beanbag chairs and a fancy office and a company car. <laughs> we've never had any of those things. You're not, you're not copying the WeWork example, I see. Um, yeah, that's not the yeah. plan for us. <laughs> so yeah, six years in, you made a tremendous life shift. Do you feel good about that decision do you feel that you're you've made the right choice in your personal life and what makes you feel that you have if so so i'm 45 now and only maybe in the past like six to nine months do i have a feeling of look things could still go to hell in any in any even large companies but especially small companies that's always possible but only in the last six to nine months have I felt a lot more confidence to feel that, no, we're on a train that clearly, like the success is, is over the horizon. I can see it. If we keep executing, we'll get there, right? We've made some of our early mistakes and that's okay. Like they made us stronger. We know how to work together better. We know how to be more efficient with our dollars. We've been efficient with our dollars, but you know, that's a process you want to improve. And so, you know, the, I think you're framing this as like a lesson to listeners. Like, when do you reach that point? you'll never have that early on in any type of new venture, right? It'll be all uncertainty, little pieces of upside that convince you you may be onto something promising, but things can still fall apart. Right, little and pieces of downside sprinkled in as well. Yeah, I mean, people draw that, you know, peaks and valleys graph for entrepreneurship, right. like we've lived that, it's absolutely true. And, right. and now we're at this stage where in a given week of emails, more of those emails are about small to medium-sized wins and very few of them are about like oh this didn't work or like you probably have to repeat it or it's gonna be more expensive than you thought right early on the, the balance was a little more different like just a bunch of rejections a bunch of no's and like every once in a while oh, your patent got granted oh that's kind of a huge deal because i just got 20 no's this week so i'm gonna really like celebrate this win yeah. now we're at this point where 
we're getting more wins anyway. And I'm not saying I take them for granted, but it kind of tells us that the company trajectory is really solid. The way we keep executing is the reason we keep getting wins. And not all of it's going to work. You get some rejections, you get some no's. But we know how to move past that and, and not even dwell on it, which is kind of nice for me in the dating world as well, to not dwell on rejection too much. And just <laughs> now, Maybe some crossover lessons there. Yeah, yeah, some crossover lessons for sure. So sometimes you know, somebody was asking me, I was talking to some very smart people at a dinner recently, and they were asking me, what I look for in companies. I'm not an investor, but I guess I invest in people in the sense of relationships. I mean, I'm very conscious clearly in the types of people that I seek out. And I've been very adamant from day one of this show that financial incentive is not, and financial reward is not the reason that I'm doing this. I'm not seeking out the richest people who have the most, that's not my target. I'm looking for a different kind of person. So somebody asked, what was the criteria that that I used? And um, I said, well, there was a lesson from when I was very a small child and my, my dad was taking us to a drive-thru at McDonald's. I was really young. And there were actually two drive-thrus side by side. And there were 10 cars in one of them and zero cars in the other one. And every single car just assumed that the right one was broken. And my dad just drove to the right one and it was in fact open. And that was a really powerful lesson to me that just because everybody is doing one thing, that doesn't mean that it's the thing that you should be doing. And in fact, maybe if you do the other thing, that's where greater reward lies because other people waited 15 minutes and we waited zero seconds. I never forgot. I was probably six years old when that lesson came to me. And so I seek out the different, right? And I think a lot of the different that I seek out is based on first principles, as Elon might call them or others, which is, you know, what are we solving for humanity? I see a lot of shiny objects in entrepreneurship between NFTs and crypto and all of these new little things that I don't fully understand their value, if I'm being honest. But something like this is just so fundamentally clear. It, it, it adheres to the first principles of humanity. And that's what makes it interesting. Like, I can understand what you're trying to do in a way that it's obvious that it's important. And that's why I am drawn to it versus like, hey, check out this app that might make me a billion dollars. Like, I, I don't know. I don't know about that. Do you feel the same way working on something first principles-ish? Do you feel a sense of deeper motivation, perhaps? Oh, completely. Well, thank you for saying that. It's a clear message and it's something you can get behind. I mean, that's yes. clearly a big piece of our fundraising success. Right. Um, you know, they want to see the, the financials, the technology, the due diligence, all fine. But I think we're at that point where the, the narrative we can put forward as founders is that I, as the investor, I don't have to guess that this guy's passionate. I don't have to guess that he's all in. It's so clear he lives and breathes this. If I invest in him, he's already invested in himself and his partners. Like it's, it's you know, almost a foregone conclusion. Mm. To your point about motivations, I mean, I went to grad school. You get his tiny student stipend. I mean, it was generous for, for a young guy, but right. you learn as a grad student this phrase opportunity cost, which anyone with some business background, they, are, they know what that is in their late teens. I learned that in maybe like my late 20s. Like, and not to I'm blame still people, trying to learn it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's an ongoing process. And not to blame Facebook, but it was like very popular at the time I was a grad student, like early 2000s. Yeah. So all my feeds were my friends who had become like a bank teller right out of college or went into, you know, I don't know, junior law intern, and they're posting about their luxury vacations. You know, we've all heard about this, like sure, the way people yeah. post on Instagram or Facebook. And I'm seeing that, and here I am making, you know, like a little bit of money in Texas with my cargo shorts and my thrift store shirts. And I was like, you know, I, I, my intention is to get a PhD out of this program. I love the collegial environment, but 
it kind of throws the meaning of opportunity cost in your face. It's like, you know, you're going to be 25 soon, 26 soon, and hopefully you'll have your degree. But your other friends are 25 and, you know, they're whatever, pulling in their banker bonuses. I mean, that's just a different level of living. And so the point is, I knew that this was a difference and I wasn't living life the way some of these other people were. But I was also contributing what I felt was meaningful science, right? Again, I did grad school, then I did a postdoctoral fellowship, then I did a second postdoctoral fellowship and developed some of these patents along the way. I said, you know, I am kind of building my skills. I am investing in myself. And a really unfortunate situation is that like early scientific trainee opportunities, you don't make a ton of money. Like the industry has never been structured that way. Mm -hmm. And so I guess that's the downside. But the upside is you find yourself with a tribe of people who are also motivated to create impact and knowledge and to disseminate that knowledge. That's a tribe that I still respect for those reasons. Um, you know, I, I'm able to put on like a, a business person's hat and say, you know, the way they've chosen their careers, it's not going to be super lucrative. I can, I can look at that as an outsider because I was in that track as well. Right. Um, and, you know, I think they understand that at a fundamental level, but if, if you've only done academia and that's all you've ever known, it's very hard to evaluate your opportunities objectively and say, oh, here's how I would make two times as much. Right. For me, I actually had the opportunity because a friend of a friend was exiting a you know, well-paid job supporting the Department of Defense for medical countermeasures portfolio development in the D.C. Virginia area. That's the job I, I exited academia for. Um, in, incredibly um, informative. I was well-paying compared to the academic positions I had. You know, I bought suits. I learned to tie my tie and wear my suits each day. And I was lucky to have those experiences. Um, but, you know, my whole first half of my career was not about this is how I get to a million dollars or a huge bonus. And, and none of those things have happened. So, <laughs> but, but here, you know, the entrepreneur journey is, is a version of that. It's like, look, you can take a salary and that's fine. Our investors understand that and they're okay with that. The true upside is in the company actually growing and succeeding and patients actually benefiting. As we can drive towards that, you know, then I don't have to, I, I'm not worried, put it this way, I'm not really worried that I, I can ever make a great salary because that wasn't really my motivation in the first place. If I was motivated to make a great salary, I would have went into finance or something like that. And I didn't. So I, I'm sort of where I'm meant to be. I think that that's just like you with hosting this podcast and like being the kind of person you are, like this is where you're meant to be. And, and I feel the same about myself. Such a profound bit of wisdom you just gave out there, right there. That, that's you said it so perfectly. And you know, depending on what you're working on, that opportunity cost manifests itself in different ways. Now, I live out here in Los Angeles, and that opportunity cost is also a function of time. Especially people who pursue anything like art, or being an actor, or being a director, people being in the movie or entertainment business, or people being an entrepreneur. There is this element of let's just say for the point of comparison, person A is making $150,000 a year every single year, just incrementally going up. Person B is making zero to $10,000 a year, but perhaps one day they go through the roof. And that's the entrepreneur way, right? Maybe you strike it big, but the longer you're at zero or near to zero, the further up you have to go when you actually strike it big. And somebody who's trying to be an actor for 30 years getting by, then you think, well, that payout must be massive at that point because you've gone 30 years of foregoing that $150,000 salary. And that's where time is a factor in all of this for us people. And uh, um, I, I think many people feel that sense of time and that time pressure in their own careers 
on both sides, right? Like I've been in person A and I'm, I'm, but now I'll never get to do my entrepreneur dream or my creative dream. And eventually creators say, gosh, I'm sick of being poor all the time. So there's almost a grass is greener, <laughs> right? From both sides. But I, that's why I personally believe, of course, that having a mission that's greater than making money is the most important thing because it's easier to hang your hat on that, in my opinion. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really tough choice to make. Just like you said, I mean, I can make super low wages and, and, and I don't really, I don't know actors, but you kind of hear this over and over that they will do gig work and just wait tables for years and years so they can for afford, years. Apartment, afford some acting classes, do some, you know, like commercial yep. gigs. And yep. that's how it has to be done. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I admire people that, that have that long-term vision because that is what it takes. You have to be like, you know, 40K jobs for the first 10 years of my career will position me for that future payoff. And you have to really be able to see that and envision that. But here's, here's an interesting counterpoint. I've had a handful okay. of my friends, and this was a couple of years ago, just seeing, you know, they're, they're seeing on LinkedIn that I, I'm bringing Lactiga, you know, the, growing the team and hitting these milestones. And they know that this thing didn't exist. There was no company before we created it. Right. And, and these happened to two, two or three people I'm thinking of, they happen to be in very traditional sectors, very well-paid sectors. So once you get in, there's no good reason to get out. But uh, I, we do catch up calls or they reach out and be like, I haven't talked to you in forever. I, I see you on LinkedIn. Um, maybe we could talk about it. We'd love to catch up. And they expressed kind of a wistfulness that they've been doing very well at the more traditional job. They get the pension, the vacation, the benefits, all the things that you're supposed to get those jobs for. But they had a wistfulness because in their words, they had these entrepreneurial visions that never went anywhere because they didn't know how to execute and they weren't, you know, basically weren't willing to take a plunge away from a reliable source of income and benefits and then to do this self-funded route where none of those benefits are guaranteed to you. So there's always that trade-off. I mean, they could afford the vacations that I wasn't even dreaming of when I was a grad student, but then, you know, this is, this is how that trade-off happens. Um, and you know, I didn't, I didn't make them feel bad about it or anything, but I, I just, I think the, the enthusiasm I have for what I'm trying to do, and why it keeps me so motivated, I think that comes across pretty quickly. And so I think in people with very traditional jobs, you know, 20 years with an enterprise, it's probably a little harder to have that passion because you've just been doing a version of the same thing for your boss for a long time. For me, I'm not trying to please my boss. I'm trying to like execute, execute against something bigger than myself, as you've said. Yeah. And that fulfillment factor, that mission factor, it'd be hard to quantify it in terms of, of dollars. And we know we live in a society where money is important, obviously, right? If you want to live, you want to retire, you want to do all of those things. Of course, money is important. But I think we as a society are learning more day by day that a sense of fulfillment and mission is also very, very important. And it's been said there was that woman who wrote the top 10 regrets of the dying. You know, of course, not acting on an impulse is one of the number one regrets of people who die that they didn't take that leap. And a lot of people say that they focused too much on work. So, but you know, pros, you and I will never solve that debate. I think one thing is right for some people. One thing is right for other people. Definitely shouldn't encourage people who are happy in their job to leave their job. But if somebody is making the plunge or if they aren't happy and they're ready for a change, then I think hearing a story like yours is very valuable. And that's kind of where I hope to meet the listeners of this show and people who might be, it's like, you know, if somebody who's considering it, it says, here, here's, here's Viraj, here's what he did. Does that inspire you? Is that something you want to do or not? Right. <laughs> and that's what we're doing. Yeah. Let's hope so. You know, it's kind I of find like, it very inspiring. Yeah. 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 Thank you so much. I feel like the, the best 
quick lesson for anyone that's on the fence like that is like, you know, investing yourself and the earlier, the better. And actually another version of that, that's a little more about my particular journey is, as I said to you, it was really important to me to seek out people that, that I feel are smarter than me because they know medicine better than me or, or elements of science and, or even just business fundamentals and business growth. Like I'm, I'm thinking about pitching this business I've never pitched before. Like, does this make any sense? Right. You seek feedback from people you trust. And some of them, I think without meaning to, <clears throat> they gave feedback, which was fairly negative, which is like, well, this has never been done this way. Like big companies don't operate this way. These are all the reasons it wouldn't work or should not work. Yeah. And they're probably well-meaning. They're trying to spare their friend from wasting his time and sparing him from heartache. But when I say invest in yourself, what I mean is if you're actually doing the homework, they've never thought about this venture the way I have. Like myself and my partner, we've been eating and sleeping this for many years now. Like, let's be very realistic. There's no one around the world that's done this level of homework on this very particular niche opportunity for these very specific patient cohorts other than us. Mm. So now we can speak with some authoritativeness or some knowledge about this. But early on, I didn't have any feeling of authority on this subject. So when you ask people, again, they think they're doing you a favor and they are imparting knowledge that they actually have from their sector, but it doesn't mean it's a reason for you to say no or to shut down your idea. That's what I mean by invest in yourself or trust yourself most. Right. And you have to cultivate that sense. That's such a powerful way. I mean, we're, we're wrapping this thing up now. Uh, you have to, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you have to cultivate that sense of, I know what I'm doing, and you have to believe in your own intuition and your own intelligence. You have to. You have to trust that. Otherwise, it's simply not going to work. I think that's a really powerful thing you just said. Um, because again, you're out on a rickety boat by yourself in stormy waters, right? So you better trust yourself. <laughs> you better believe in yourself. Nobody else may. You may get 20 rejections yeah. or 200 or 2,000. You know, part of it is projecting confidence. You may not totally feel it. It may not be internal, but you better find a way to make it external, right? That, that phrase, you know, fake it till you make it. It's so, it's so cliche right. at this point, but it, it, there's an element of truth in that. It's like, mm -hmm. you know, you may know that the, the last two experiments just look like garbage, but the ones before those were still pretty good. So we're still onto something, right? So putting your best face forward. But, you know, again, at this point, there's, there's no huge failures for us to highlight in, in the disclosure process or the diligence process. We've just been very fortunate to hit this traction where when we try something, I think it's a testament to having thought it through first and worked it through with our consultants or our scientists so that by the time you execute, you've set yourself up for success because you've spent the upfront time to design it in a way that you're li most likely to see what you were planning to see or something that supports your hypothesis. Um, so you can do all that homework up front and now you're positioning yourself for success so that the outcomes keep feeding back into this positive narrative. Then you have that flywheel effect that a lot of like tech startups like to talk about in the valley. Once the flywheel is moving, you're not trying as much because it's already moving. It's already doing the forward motion for you. You're, yeah. just, you're just kind of supporting that and, you know, nurturing that and keeping the flywheel going. And, and, and to that end, I think your academic background surely prepared. You said everything has led you to this moment. And I'm sure that your academic background has helped you to understand what the adequate amount of evidence would be for any hypothesis, right? If you're defending a dissertation or a paper, you know that you're going to need to back that up. And in this case, the dissertation or the paper is your life or your, your, your company. So you probably had a better than average concept of what level of evidence you would need in order to make this happen, if I had to guess. 
you know, in, in the Versus. biotech world, I mean, every sector has its expected level yeah. of knowledge. In biotech, I mean, you know, like I said, I did this PhD, I did these postdoc fellowships. And the point of those is the rigor of expectations that your peers and your colleagues will have of you forces you to, you know, you have to know what you're doing. You have to know how to synthesize information. I mean, if you come away from the science world and the Google world, if you and I want to take opposite positions on whatever debate, we could do it in five seconds, right? Like you can find evidence in your favor on Google and I can find it in my favor on Google. And now we're just arguing a bunch of blogs and links that neither of us really wrote the, wrote the originating uh, science or the originating yeah. points. We're just regurgitating points that support what we already feel. Yeah. Um, what I love about science is it's not driven by that process. It, it's supposed to be more empirical and evidence driven. And you're, you're always standing on the shoulders of the giants that came before you. So we talk about these are the fundamentals that suggest this technology should work. That's based on, you know, the last five years, last 20 years, even the last 60 years of immunology. Um, but now I don't even get to think about this much, but now maybe we're one of the new contributors to the cutting edge of this domain because we're putting out data sets that are different from previous studies that have been done. So 10, 20 years from now, will we be the reference point for some new entrepreneur? Like that's a really special feeling. I haven't even had time to really sit and process that, but this is part of contributing to the scientific literature and the public domain. This is knowledge that can benefit different people in different ways. And so it should be out there. Well, that's a great way to wrap it up. Um, I think that's what you're doing for sure. From, <laughs> from a distance, it sure appears that way. And I'm extremely excited to see what the implications of this are in the next year, as you said, and beyond um, five to 10 years, who knows? But it's just, it's profoundly cool. I'm glad I found you. Thanks again for saying yes and agreeing to share your story. It was even more interesting than I imagined that it would be when we started this call. So I very much appreciate it and I'll keep cheering you on. It's it's just super cool and it's super exciting. So may the next two steps go very well for you. And um, unless you have any parting words, I think we'll wrap it up. Anything last you want to get in or where people can you know find you, promote your work, any of that? Oh, sure. Well, the website is lactiga.com, L-A-C-T-I-G-A.com. But, you know, I'll just leave the last two words, which we covered a couple minutes ago, is trust yourself. Well, that's a perfect and, ending. Yeah. With that, Ross, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure getting to know you today. The pleasure was all mine. And with that, the official podcast is over. Thanks again for listening to another episode of the Beat the Often Path podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the episodes we've shared, it would mean a great deal to me if you subscribe to the podcast on your platform of choice or on YouTube. And of course, if you shared either the show itself or this particular episode with somebody who might want to hear it to help us grow the audience for the show, I would greatly, greatly appreciate it. So if you've been a passive listener all this time, I get it. I understand. There's no big deal with that. But it would really, really mean a lot to me if you'd leave a positive review and help me grow this show. So thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time.